really the first area of my own conversion. I never tell the story in Rome's Sweet Home because nobody would get it. Hey, welcome everybody to New Polity's podcast. If you are joining us for the first time, New Polity is a think tank for Catholic social doctrine. We are trying to take serious the claim that Jesus Christ is truly the king of the universe and trying to figure out what are the implications of that in regards to our relationships now to other citizens. How does the corporate kingship of Christ really begin to change the pattern and order of the way that we should behave in politics and in economics. Uh, Scott was actually kind of an integral part to, to us launching in some ways. Uh, he uh, published Before Church and State, Andrew Willard Jones' book uh, that really gave us our start here. Uh, and he also, um, maybe this is a surprise to some people, he studied economics in undergrad. And in this conversation you're about to listen to, he talks in brief about the way in which Catholic social teaching and economics in particular uh, helped him find the truth of the Catholic Church. This particular podcast series entitled Good Money is specifically an investigation into the church's teachings on how we are supposed to engage economically, how we Christians are supposed to handle money. We like to say that the tagline for this series is how to be rich in friends and poor in pocket, how to invest in the kingdom of God, you know, all that good stuff. So we're, look we're looking forward to um, this conversation, this upcoming conversation with Scott and how he finds some of the uh, teachings and principles that we investigate later in the tradition, uh, buried already within sacred scripture, in Levitical test, text uh, specifically. Uh, so we hope you enjoy that. Uh, in addition to uh, to all this, we hope that those of you who are still looking for uh, things to get your loved ones for Christmas might go over to the College of St. Joseph's uh, website. Specifically, go on to studentvilleworkshop.com slash shop, and you find a whole bunch of, um, of uh, professionally made woodwork items um, coming right out of our shop, and the proceeds of that go straight to the College of St. Joseph the Worker. Uh, on which uh, uh, Scott actually serves as an advisory board member. So we're really excited uh, about that project and, uh, you know, take that honest plug and as uh, for whatever it's worth. And uh, we hope, hope that you'll uh, enjoy whatever you get from the store. Thanks so much. Bye. All right. Ready? Yep. All right. Well, welcome everybody to Good Money. I am delighted that Scott Hahn is joining me today. Thank you so much, my neighbor and my friend, yes. as well as was was my teachers oh. today. So I'm very excited to open up the sacred scriptures with you and uh, can look back at the economy as God designed it for us. Right. You know. Well, first of all, thank you for the invitation, Jacob, yeah. and also for the gift of your friendship but also for the many hours of conversation that we've enjoyed privately. Yeah. Only now we're sort of turning the lights on so other people will suffer from you know, our excessive curiosity and everything else that goes with it. Yeah, maybe this is all a mistake. We thought this would be enjoyed by more people than just us, but all right, you know, here you go. That's perfectly fine with me. I'll enjoy it myself with you. That's yeah. great. Well, you know, so we, we were actually, so we were sitting not long ago chatting about the Jubilees and how it really shatters all of our conception of the economy as it as it runs today, as the market is kind of organized today. And particularly, just what a crazy concept the Sabbath is, um, let alone whole Sabbath years, let alone the year of Jubilees. Right. 
So, I mean, in a certain sense, we are tackling an impossibly complex subject. Right. <laughs> On the other hand, what is better than to do that? You know, <laughs> when you want to find some simple thing. So you just said it though, because the year of Jubilee, which is only stipulated in the law of Moses in Leviticus 25, is sort of like the Mount Everest of an entire an entire range of laws. You could almost picture the Himalayas because, you know, the oldest law in a way is the Sabbath. It goes back to the creation account and it shows us that God has consecrated the seventh day. And then of course, in Exodus, we learn from chapter 31 that the seventh day is the Sabbath, which is the sign of the covenant. So we're looking at something that is much more than contractual economics, hmm. more than transactional exchanges between individuals who have the rights of private property, all of which is fine. But what the word of God does that we don't do is to subordinate all of the contractual relations of individuals to the covenantal bonds of families and not just households, but the family of nations. You, hmm. know, you, uh, you can see this, for example, in Genesis 10, where after the flood, the 70 descendants of Noah are identified by the names of the nations. So through the eyes of God, the father, the human race is one big family in Genesis 10, the table of nations. But in Genesis 11, the tower of Babel makes it one big broken family, one mm. big confused family. And so when God calls Abram in Genesis 12 to be the conduit of the blessing for all of the families of the earth, this is how the restoration will come through the covenant but the sign of the covenant will be the Sabbath, especially when they come back to the land and they receive that as an inheritance. But the idea of land, the idea of family, the idea of covenant, and especially the notion of Sabbath. I mean, we almost, we, we, we'd be better off speaking Swahili. I mean, this is so <laughs> foreign, so alien, so incomprehensible to moderns and postmoderns. But the Sabbath, I think, is the simplest place to begin because before you get to Leviticus 25, you have the entire liturgical calendar set forth in Leviticus 23, and then a few mm -hmm. adjustments in 24, but then you have the, the climax, the summit, the peak of the whole sabbatical calendar of Leviticus 23. So I won't go through all of the details, but just for our, for our listeners and all of that. Um, in Leviticus 23, you have the seven annual feasts, and the first one, fittingly, is the Sabbath. So every week you establish the rhythm of life according to the covenant by ordering all of your work six days to worship the seventh day so that the fruit of your labor is basically consecrated through sacrificial liturgy on the Sabbath. And then, of course, after the Sabbath, you have the Passover, but the Passover is just too good to be one day. So you extend it out seven more days. And so you have an octave of Passover with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the third feast. And then you count seven sevens to the Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, literally the Feast of Sevens, the Feast of Oaths, because to swear an oath, to swear a covenant is to seven yourself. So that seven weeks after Passover is Pentecost. Literally, it's the 50th day. That's why we call it Pentecost. But you could almost get a sense of anticipation because the year of Jubilee is prefigured in the day of Pentecost. It's almost as though Jubilee, the 50th year, is the year of Pentecost, and Pentecost is like a day of Jubilee. Hmm. And this is how the ancient Israelites understood it, as we know from the book of Jubilees. But after the Feast of Jubilees, I'm sorry, after the Feast of Pentecost, 
you have the first four in the first half of the year. And the last three feasts of the calendar are all, again, fittingly in the seventh month. So the Feast of Trumpets, the first day of the seventh month, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement on the 10th day of the seventh month. And the seventh feast occurs in the seventh month, and that's the Feast of Tabernacles, which also lasted seven days. So Why all these sevens? Well, I mean, we think lucky number or yeah, yeah. <laughs> sacred symbol. But I mean, once you see that in Genesis 21, 21, the first time a covenant is made between two humans, it's with Abraham and his pagan neighbor named Abimelech. And uh, they do it through seven lambs that are sacrificed. And that's why they call the place the Be'er Shiva. It's the well of the seven or the well of the oath. They made a covenant. They averted war. But the day after the covenant, they're not calling each other rivals or neighbors. They're calling each other brothers. Mm -hmm. Because once you establish a covenant by an oath symbolized by seven, then you realize that this is sacred kinship. This is more than just blood, yeah. biological. It's more than just law, sociological. There really is a sacred component to covenant kinship that these two strangers enter into to avoid conflict, to avert war. Yeah. But from that point on, even Isaac refers to Abimelech as his kinsman, right. though they've lost track of any interrelatedness by that point. Right. And so, Sabbatha, the, the, the root here that's is, right. is shared between covenant and seven. And so that's this right. is why it's, it's a continual reminder almost for us to, to hear seven, to realize that there's a covenant, there's something that's binding us together, that we're becoming kinsmen. That's exactly, yeah. I mean, Raphael Samson Hirsch is considered the, the founding father of modern Orthodox Judaism. Hmm. And he would comment on the feasts and he wrote a lot of commentary on the, the Sabbath. And so what is Shabbat? It is the seventh day. It is, you know, what the temple is to space the Sabbath is to time, and that is God inscribing his covenant bond with us into creation, both time and space. It's sacred space, but it's also sacred time. And so, again, you have to realize that, um, that justice is not reducible to transactional exchange. It's mm. not reducible to social justice, that is sort of equity and fairness. The highest form of justice, according to Aquinas, and he's drawing from Cicero as well as Moses, is religio. It's the virtue of virtues, the highest form of justice. Pieper points this out in the four cardinal virtues and others too. And what is the expression of religion? Well, you sacrifice to God and him alone, but when and where do you sacrifice? Well, that's what the Sabbath is for. So all of life is sort of punctuated by the rhythm of the sacred sevens, the Sabbaths, the feasts, but not just every year, but as you discover, every seven years, you have what professors covet, and that is the proverbial sabbatical, <laughs> where you get to, you get paid, but you get paid to not work, but to work on projects that you, can, you can't do apart from leisure. So you're basically legislating leisure into life, as people would say, leisure is the basis of culture, but cult worship is the purpose of leisure. It isn't just sitting around on a Saturday afternoon, it really is entering into the rest of the Sabbath yes. for the purpose of prayer, worship, but not just in an individualistic or pietist way, it's public, it's corporate, and it really is sort of the, the again, it's, it's the Mount Everest. It's the peak of all that we do together as humans. So when you stretch it out over the seven months of the first year, and then the seventh year when the debts are, when the debts are canceled mm -hmm. in the Sabbath year, and then what happens when you have the seven sevens, the, the seventh sabbatical year is followed by the year of Jubilee, the 50th year. And that's what Leviticus 25 is all about. And 
for most modern readers of scripture, as you know, it's generally interpreted or practically reduced to a form of redistribution. Uh, and so when I think back to when I was first studying scripture to develop a biblical worldview as an evangelical Protestant in the 70s, Ron Sider was this best-selling evangelical writer who had a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, where he used mm. the Jubilee to introduce socialism and the whole idea of the redistribution of wealth in the form of land or whatever else. And yeah. I remember thinking, okay, I can see on the surface, but that's actually a misinterpretation because what the year of Jubilee does is almost the exact opposite. Right. It yes. isn't the redistribution of wealth, it's the restoration of families by having them return to their land, right. even if they've had pestilence, famine, death, or whatever, they will never be alienated from the inheritance of this land that was given to them by promise. So the Holy Land isn't just one big chunk of real estate, it's parceled out for all of the 12 tribes who are made up of hundreds of clans, which are then subdivided into thousands of households yes. or domestic units. But the nation of Israel is 12 tribes. It's a national family. It's made up of extended families. And so you never have individualism on the one hand, which just absolutizes private property as an individualist right. You also don't have a collectivism on the other where the state uses coercion to just redistribute wealth as they see fit right. to the their voters or to their donors or to whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know. It really is a familistic way of seeing that the basic unit of society is neither the individual nor the corporate state. Yes. It really is the family at every level. And that's one of the big things that distinguishes the Old Testament jubilees from the jubilees that were happening in the Near East at that time, as far as I've been able to see. No, that's so, really true. So you see when a king is ascending to his throne, what does he do in, in Akkadia or in Babylon? He forgives debts right away. That's right. It's arbitrary. It's by his own, his own fiat. But really what it does is it undermines his rivals because as people were amassing and accumulating they were able to hold some people in debt, which That's is right. a claim over them. It's a form of slavery. It's in power. And, and yeah. it also implicitly... But there's given, nobody here. It's just a law. That's right. It yeah. divinizes the king because right. if the king has an absolute sovereign power to forgive debts or not, mm -hmm. then he's basically got the same coercive power to do anything else that he wants. Right. Whereas if God is the king of the universe, yes. then the land is his, we are his, but he has made us in his own image and likeness, male and female, in the marital covenant in the household covenant like Noah had aboard the ark, or the tribe that was under Abraham's authority as chieftain, or the 12 tribes that are under Moses. But Moses is the mediator of the law. He's not the giver of the law. Mm -hmm. And so the laws of Leviticus that touch upon the year of Jubilee are basically God signaling to Israel, you're my firstborn son, as he tells Moses the burning bush in Exodus 4.22. But what does that imply? That all the nations are going to be discover that they're also called to be a part of this worldwide family of God, this familia dei, but you're my firstborn. So just like any father knows to focus on the firstborn because he's setting up the model, you know, the, the, in a certain sense, um, my firstborn son was the role model, the pace setter, the mediator, according to the natural order. Cause mm. you know, like my older brother Fritz, I tended to imitate him. So my younger kids imitated their firstborn so that as the Gentiles study the way that God is fathering Israel, they have a lot to learn. But most especially, as you just said, Jacob, one thing they learn is that the king is not divine. 
but God is the real king. And so if he's going to empower the priests and later on the kings from the line of David, they're always going to be strictly and publicly subordinated as servants of the true king. And uh, I, I think that helps us to understand that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right. but so are we. So he gives us the land and we return the tithes of the herds and the flocks, the tithes of the grain, the wheat, the fruit, the olive and the grape harvest as well to kind of signal to God, we're yours, the land is yours, all of the crops, all of the flocks, they're yours. And as a token to remind us, and especially to remind you that we haven't forgotten you, this is how we remember the covenant right. because we got the land because you remember the covenant and fulfilled the promises that you gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that we would inherit this land as ancestral territory, but ultimately the land belongs to you. The crops belong yeah. to you. And so if we flourish, we always pay the tithes and offerings. And if we languish, we know that we can't disinherit future generations because the family's not reducible down to mom, dad, and the kids, or even the living members of the family but like the fathers who came before us and the seed, the offspring will come after us. The family is a kind of spiritual corporation. It is a mystical body. Right. And the land is an essential part of that as well. And I mean, we could just stop here and restate this and boggle minds enough for the next hour or two. You know? <laughs> but we have to go on from there as well, because in a certain sense, it's an ideal that was never attained in the actual historical, cultural background of Israel. There's right. no proof that they ever kept this. Although we do know from the story of Naboth in 1 Kings 21, where King Ahab wants to buy Naboth's vineyard. And he's like, I can't sell my land. Yeah. <laughs> and the king is like, what are you talking about? And Jezebel is like, what is he talking about? Just kill him and take it. Because that's what pagan kings did. But even halfway righteous Israelites don't look at the land as a marketable commodity. Right. You know, it's an agrarian culture. It's an extended family economy. And so the land is not just something that you sell to the highest bidder. The land is holy. And it's where our forefathers fought and died and, you know, they bled, they're buried here. But even more than that, this is the trust that they have entrusted to us. And so we preserve this right. as and our ancestral birthright. You know, and it's interesting, the land, you might say for so many different projects that there you cooperate with God in it. And you certainly cooperate with God in farming, but not in the creation of the land. No, that's that's right. just a pure gift. So when we see here in, in the Jubilees, God just states it explicitly, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. Right. He just claims it. And you are, it, and you're mine as well. Yeah, yeah, and by the so way. I put yeah, you here yeah, yeah. <laughs> to flourish, to prosper, but always in my presence. You, and maybe this is too tangential, but another uh, thing we've chatted about is, is about this tithe, which you just mentioned. Uh, a couple chapters later in Leviticus, there's a discussion of how do you tithe to the temple? How do you, how do you give back to God or give what is his to him? And it is always in kind. And if you are to pay in silver instead of in kind in vegetables and goats and, and real things, then you're supposed to add 20% to that amount. And you had this amazing insight the other day, day when we were chatting. You said this is like reverse usury. Right. 
Yeah. Do you want to explain that? Well, okay. yeah. I mean, yeah. you've just introduced some big ticket items. We has, we, we, we should probably go back and sure. Sorry a little about that. Bit. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah. I, I would say thank you. Yeah. Um, so if we're looking at the nation as an extended family mm -hmm. and a family of families, and we're looking at the land as sacred and ancestral inheritance and thus inalienable, it belongs to the Lord. We do too, but he gave it to our fathers for us to give to our offspring, to our grandchildren and so on. Then what is wealth? Well, when we speak of the commonwealth of Pennsylvania or the commonwealth of Ohio, we're talking about the common good. And in this case, it is communal. It is the land. And so what you have to recognize then is that real wealth, the commonwealth, is primarily spiritual, but also physical, but spiritual first, mm -hmm. because it's the land, it's the Lord's. Well, in that case, then the herds and the flocks and the increase thereof, so that the firstlings of the cattle, the sheep, the goats, and so on, they're meant to be set apart because all of it belongs to the Lord, but he asks for only the tenth of the tithe. And so, you know, in Deuteronomy 12, you realize, okay, three times a year, according to the calendar of Leviticus 23, for Passover, and then five weeks later for Pentecost, then in the seventh month for the Feast of Sukkot or Tabernacles, we have leisure. We have literally holidays in the sense of holy days where we are required to rest in the presence of God to enter into the joy of the thanksgiving that comes from harvesting the grain, the wheat and the barley in the spring, and then the olives and the grapes in the fall, and giving to him the portion. And then likewise, as we come up on these pilgrim feasts of Passover, Pentecost and Tabernacles, celebrating as the family of God, as the people of God, the holy nation of Israel, we're basically resetting. It, it, we're pressing reset. This is who we are. This is why we do what we do. Mm. According to the sabbatical rhythm, we are the sons and daughters of God. He is our father, so we are his family. And then the herds, the flocks, and the increase thereof, this is real wealth. This is real fruitfulness. Mm. This is what barakah means. The blessing of the crops, the herds, and the fruit, and the grain, and all of that. And so you're celebrating in his presence. It's a command performance, but it's this joyful vacation as mm. well. And it's like, okay, well, how can it be all of that? Well, if the greatest <laughs> commandment of the law is love, <laughs> and the second one is love your neighbor as yourself, then do the math. You know, just draw out the logic because then it's not about money exchanging hands between two individuals, buying and selling land, cattle, sheep, and goats. No, it really is familial. Yeah. intergenerational, mm -hmm. agrarian. I mean, there are there are cities, but those are mostly Levitical towns, the 48 Levitical cities that we read about in Numbers. And so we would say, well, this is like everything is upside down until you step back and say, no, this is right side up. Because then suddenly, if you want to just give money as the tithe or money as the offering, instead of the firstlings of the herds, the flocks, and the first fruits of your crops... Then you have to monetize the tithe by adding 20%, yeah. which is clearly an economic disincentive to give to the Levites anything less than the first fruits of the, of the, of the, of the harvest, as well as the firstborn of the herds and the flocks. Uh, they are God's ministers. You got the land as your portion, as your inheritance. Right. The Levites don't get landed allotments in, we, we read in Leviticus and Numbers, for I, the Lord, am their portion. And so they live in these towns that administer justice and they make sure that there should be fair exchange rates and that sort of right. thing. 
but they are there if they get money instead of the tithe itself in real goods you know you're going to have this added price you know and you know what you're doing then is basically disincentivizing re reducing economic exchange down to money if money right. is to remain a medium of exchange mm -hmm. then you got to see that what you're exchanging is the commonwealth the real wealth in that case you can keep money from becoming what it is for all of us and that is a measure of wealth well how much wealth do you have well i've got to check my bank statement no how much wealth do i have i've got to check the land the crops the herds the flocks my grandparents my parents my kids my grandkids my great grandkids because right. this is real wealth mm -hmm. it's personalistic it's interpersonal it's familistic and it's like it's almost impossible for us to think that way until my students end up with an African priest or seminarian who's sitting in one of my classes where we're dealing with scripture because mm -hmm. you can just see them light up like a Christmas tree. They understand the land. They understand yeah. the tribe. They understand the sacred. And so they understand economics in a way that is not reducible to individualism or statism, right. but a kind of tribal agrarian life that really causes people to flourish or suffer together. Yes. You know, yes. and so the division, the polarization that we just come to take for granted. Now, again, I want to step, step back and state the obvious. And that is, this is ideal right. in one yes. level, mm -hmm. but at a deeper level, it's also very real. What is ideal is thinking that we can deviate for the law, from the law of God for generations and generations and what still flourish. That's ideal. You know? <laughs> That's stupid idealism. Yeah. But there's a hard-headed Hebrew realism, I think, that is present in my African students. And I've been teaching now for, you know, I think for almost 40 years. And I've probably had several hundred of them. And after class, the students will linger because these, you know, these, these seminarians or these priests will start talking to me like, you're the first, you know, person in America, you know, a Caucasian or whatever, <laughs> who gets what we all take for granted. <laughs> That's a great line. You know, for this uh, idea of focusing on the real rather than the abstract forms of wealth, I mean, it is so counterintuitive for us today. One of these things also is that we forget just how generative the original gift of creation is as well, that, that whereas money is sterile, it sits on its own, you know, Goats, you know, they get after it. They generate. They they produce. They uh, they themselves produce some sort of increase. That's right. And, th and that's I think in part with this kind of anti-usury moment that's happening here. Like focus on the real. Focus on the fact that what God has gifted us keeps giving. Right. Yeah. Three thoughts, and I've got to line them up in proper order. Yeah. The first thought is. When we emphasize how ideal this is, mm -hmm. we've got to be careful not to become legalistic with ideals because councils of perfection are not the same thing as like the Decalogue, the Absolutely. Ten Commandments. Yeah. And so picture Israel in exile. And Jeremiah, of course, predicted that. But I think what bothered Jeremiah more than the fact that Israel was in exile was that after a generation or two, they didn't realize it anymore. They were so at home in Babylon by mm. the end of Jeremiah's 50 years of prophetic ministry that what really irks him is that you're in exile and you don't know it because you're so at home in Babylon, red light, you know, alert, warning. Mm. And, and so when we find ourselves in 21st century Western culture in America, individualism, collectivism, socialism, all of the above and more, 
we don't realize that we're in exile, that we can't sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, as the psalmist right. says, because what well, we can, but there's a certain sense in which you've got to keep the commandments that you're able to, to fulfill mm. without binding consciences in ways that just seemingly are, are impossible or unattainable. But the next thing really nails, I mean, you nailed it a minute ago, Jacob, when you talked about usury and fertility. Because, I mean, uh, in the laws that were given by the Lord to Moses at Mount Sinai, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, especially Exodus, Leviticus, there is no permission anywhere for usury. Right. Only when you fast forward 40 years and you discover after the second generation has, has come of age, and the second generation has failed by worshiping Baal Peor in Numbers 25, like their parents had worshiped the golden calf mm -hmm. in Exodus 32, does Moses impose a set of laws that we call Deuteronomy, literally the second law, mm -hmm. because it's given to the second generation. And just as Jesus says, Moses permitted for the hardness of your heart, talking about divorce and remarriage in Deuteronomy 24, it's Moses, not God at Sinai, it's Moses, the plains of Moab, permitting, not commanding, divorce and remarriage for the hardness of your heart. Back in Exodus, the only one with a hardened heart was Pharaoh. 40 years right. later, you might have taken Israel out of Egypt, but you haven't taken Egypt out of Israel. Right. They still have a hardened heart. Right. And so you have concessions in Deuteronomy that, that, uh, that coincide with Moses as the lawgiver that you don't find in the Exodus legislation. Nowhere is divorce and remarriage permitted by God at Sinai in Exodus. Hmm. Uh, nowhere is usury. And I should also add harem warfare. The idea in Exodus is that you don't enter into covenants with Canaanites, much less marry them. Mm. But 40 years later, Moses knows that they're not going to avoid the temptation to enter into marriage with Canaanites, so you don't spare them. Right. So the whole idea of the genocidal warfare that will restore the ancestral inheritance of the promised land to us and take it from the poachers who have usurped it, you know, that's a concession that you find in Deuteronomy 20, verse 17, but nowhere in the Sinai legislation that you find it. But a perfect example of that is neshek. The Hebrew word for usury is only allowed in Deuteronomy, right. along with divorce and remarriage, along with harem warfare, for the hardness of your heart. But you can't charge usury on a loan given to any brother Israelite. You know, neshek in Hebrew literally means a bite. You don't bite your brother. Hmm. No, but the permission is that if you do give loans to outsiders, to Gentiles who are out of the covenant, then you can charge the bite. But it's again a concession because the goal ought to be to convert these Gentiles and bring them into the covenant with the God of Israel. But that awaits David at Mount Zion. That's still a few centuries off. The third thing I want to highlight about what you just said on the unusury uh, is the Greek term for usury, as you know, is tokia, which is like a dark pun. Yeah. It literally means offspring. Yep. And when you go back to the Greeks, you realize that Plato and Aristotle understood real well, what is fertile? Well, the land is fertile mm. with the grain and the wheat and the barley and the cattle, the sheep and goats are fertile. So what do they have? They have offspring and the firstborn of the herds and the flocks ought to be offered according to the Israelite law to the Lord God. But one thing you don't have is the fertility of money. 
Right. But you also have bankers who pretend that it's fertile. <laughs> if they're going to loan you money, they ought to enter into partnership, not only to assume the potential profit, but also to assume the, the risk of potential loss. Right. But of course, this is the way to have your cake and eat it. You loan people money and you act as though money is as fertile as the herds and the crops and the flocks by requiring neshek. You bite your brother, you know, and one of the greatest resources I could ever recommend, I mentioned this to you, it's by this great economic historian by the name of Benjamin Nelson. It came out of the University of Chicago Press in the late 40s. It's called The Idea of Usury from Tribal Brotherhood to Universal Otherhood. And what Nelson does, simply as an agnostic academic, a secular economic historian, is just to show that when usury was not permitted, it's because we saw each other as brothers. When usury is finally permitted, it's precisely because of the breakdown of families and nations into mere individualism. And so with that comes the rise of money, not as the medium of exchange, but as the measure of value. And once you monetize the economy, you basically take people off the land and you force them into cities because the, the land and the value of crops and flocks are going to be all based upon those who oversee money and monetary exchange rates. They're going to make it to their own advantage. And the prophets all decry that, especially Isaiah and Amos. Mm. But once you do that, you're going to basically force people off the land from their own family inheritance into cities where they're going to work in factories or you know, basically in a monetized economy where how much money you have in your pocket is really how much you think you have wealth. Right. And it's like, as my mom would say, bass backwards. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, one thing that we look back, looking back in the tradition, looking back in the sacred scriptures, uh, see so often as, as an ideal, as you said, that we cannot live perfectly. I mean, half this stuff, we as just As much cannot. as we can, we ought to strive. Yes. You know, and, but. you know, converting ourselves and our neighbors so that one day we might be able to retrieve this sort of social order. Yeah. You know, in hundreds of years, maybe it'll come about again, please God. Um, Once we start desiring to. Yes. Right. Yeah. We will only We don't even build... desire it anymore. Yeah. yeah. We're so at home in Babylon, yeah. we don't even know how to think in non-Babylonian terms. Right. You know, and I would say the Sabbath is really the, um, it's the nucleus. Um, and, you know, I think of John Paul II in Deus Domine uh, on keeping the Lord's Day. Uh, because when you look at the, how the Lord's Day is legislated in the Decalogue, there in Exodus 20, it's not commanding, you know, liturgic furniture, banners, all kinds of music. It just says, remember the Sabbath day to keep yeah. it holy. The only time Kodesh occurs, holiness occurs in the Decalogue. And, it, and it's, it's targeting who? Neither you, implying your spouse as well, your sons, your daughters, your manservants and your maidservants, even the oxen and the asses shall rest, right. and even the sojourners in your gates. Right. So everybody is subject to leisure. It isn't just that some people are going to be employed for your pleasure, you know, at their expense. And so this is why when we first got married and we were discovering the Sabbath as the sign of the covenant, as newlyweds at seminary, uh, I would ask Kimberly, you know, you're weary from working down in Cambridge, you know, the commute and all of that. You know, why don't we just gather our classmates on Sunday and invite them to bring a loaf of bread, some cheese, some meat, some drinks, and we'll provide as well, but we'll host this. And so for months and really for a few years, Sunday would be this rich time of fellowship, conversation. Mm -hmm. We would pray together, we would sing, but we would also feast on whatever people happened to bring, you know, and it was a day of rest for her and for me and for all of these other friends of ours. 
And so even still, we we generally try to avoid employing restaurant workers. Right. And so while Kimberly yeah. now prepares a banquet because we've got five out of our 21 grandkids a few miles away, <laughs> so we gather as a family every Sunday for two or three hours of feasting and 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 celebration. You know, I just say that whatever you can do reasonably well without a burden, you know, yeah. works of necessity are obviously allowed on the Lord's day. Right. Yeah. And and so you have to take a non-legalistic approach to fulfilling the law as much as your heart longs to do and to do it with other people as well. Yeah. With the well, sojourners as well as your own sons and daughters. Yeah. One of these things that I think stuns us from doing, kind of following this law and following the tradition, is precisely what you just said a couple minutes ago about everybody moving to a city, that we all live in city lives now. Yeah. And you said something that we call city these metropolises after motherhood. That's mother right. city. Mater city. Yeah. Mater Can you talk about that? I, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a funny thing. You go back in the scriptures and you find in Genesis 4, the first city. And it's not a pretty place. No. You know, yeah. uh, Cain has a son named Enoch, and he named the first city after the name of his son. And you can just trace it out six generations. And by the time you get to the sixth generation of Tuval Cain and, and, uh, and Lamech, you have industry, you have culture, you have the lyre and the pipe, you have the bronze and iron instruments, mm -hmm. but you also have sexual immorality and violence. So that uh, Lamech is threatening to avenge anybody 77-fold. And uh, I've murdered a man for wounding me and that sort of thing. And so the city in ancient rabbinic tradition becomes associated, yeah, with industry, with fine arts and culture, along with sexual immorality and <laughs> violence. It's like, wow, have things changed? No. You know? <laughs> On the other hand, you do have cities like the city of God, mm -hmm. the holy city, but in addition, you have in the law of Moses, 48 towns that are designated Levitical cities mm -hmm. so that those who are consecrated, those who are under a profession of faith live there. They don't have any land as their allotted wealth for the Lord is their portion. And the Levites are there to oversee medicine in the case of leprosy and the mm -hmm. laws of numbers. They're also to educate, they're to adjudicate legal controversies. So the Levites sit with the elders in the gates of the towns. And of course, besides the 48 cities that are Levitical cities, you have the cities of refuge that are set apart for the involuntary manslaughter. You also have the holy city, the 49th city, which is Jerusalem, where the temple will be built. And so what are cities, but they're walled for protection. They're also there for those who are orphans and widows and those who don't have families to protect them. Right. And so they represent an extension of the womb. The womb is there for protection, for life-giving nurture. And the city is not primarily the place where the majority of people live. The city is where the Levites take care of the needy, where you go with the produce of the land to help the Levites take care of the needy, the widows, the orphans, the sojourners, and so on. Uh, and so, again, it's like, I remember reading a book, it was over a thousand pages long, nothing but a commentary on the laws of Moses back in high school and college and thinking, as I studied economics at Grove City, mm -hmm. and I was drawn into the, the Austrian school of libertarian gold school economics, yep. as a good Calvinist, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really kind of resonated. It, it, it kind of fit with my individualistic view of salvation. But as I'm diving into the covenant, and I'm discovering that, no, it's not individualism, it's familism. 
And the laws protect families and not just rich individuals who have private property and lots of money. I began to rethink things in really the first area of my own conversion. I never tell the story in Rome's Sweet Home because nobody would get it. But when I discovered the Catholic Church's social teaching in Rerum Navarum, Quadragesimano, it isn't just a worker's wage. It isn't just the universal destination of private property. It's a family wage. Yeah. And so the basic unit of society is the family. And so if the if the workers have been uprooted from lands, brought into the cities where there are factories, you owners had better make sure that you're empowering them to be faithful fathers and providing for their, their wife and their kids and that kind of thing, which is, of course, what didn't happen with the factory system in the 19th century right. as families were taken off the land. And even though I, I really still appreciate Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek and okay. others, I must admit that when I read Leo Thirteenth <laughs> and Pope Pius yeah. 40 years later in Quadragesimo Anno, I'm like, ding, 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 ding. This is covenantal economics. Right. This is family, but it's not just the Israelite family in the old covenant. It really is the new covenant showing us a sacramental kinship through baptismal rebirth, through the flesh and blood that we share in the Holy Eucharist. And, and so by the time you have Pope, you know, uh, I'm thinking of Pope Boniface VIII in the year 1300, he's the first pope to call for a jubilee. And it calls for a pilgrimage to Rome. And he's asking for debts to be forgiven. But he's basically saying, look, we are a sacramental kinship bond, you know, yeah. as a Catholic church. And this is what Isaiah 61 announces about the favorable year of the Lord. This is what Jesus is proclaiming in the synagogue in Nazareth there in Luke 4, when he's saying this scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. Right. The Lord has anointed the servant yes. and he's proclaiming good news to the poor this is the acceptable year of the Lord. We're going to take that legislation that was meant for a tiny slice of property. You know, Palestine's a little bit larger than New Jersey. Only now we're Catholics, the new covenant. We ought to find equitable ways to share wealth as family does for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And wherever we live on earth, what the teachings of the church are meant to show us is that the family is the basic unit of society. But since we don't have Levites, we ought to also support the clergy, right. the new Levites, the new high priesthood and that sort of thing. And I, I must admit, I, I just feel like contemplating these mysteries in Scripture and in the Catholic tradition as taught by the Church's social teaching. I would rather contemplate these than read the Republican Party platform or the Democrats <laughs> or the Libertarians because it's just like... We're different. We're, we're looking at different views from within a Babylonian culture. Right. And it's like, okay, I see the pragmatic value of voting with the party that will do the least damage. Right. You know, yeah. so we learn yeah. how to lose our values more slowly, you know, <laughs> and maybe even restore some. <laughs> but along the way, what we've got to do for our kids' sake and our grandchildren is to rethink money, rethink commonwealth, rethink the sacraments yeah. and the social order that is implied in the seven sacraments that we celebrate. Right. You know, and here, you mean, should we just get into the chapter 25? Yeah, let's do it. Let's a little dive bit? right in. You know, because so much of this is just buried right here. I mean, one thing that you mentioned is that with within Israel, you have, it, it is a clan. It is a family. Everything is structured by love. And that, that the love that you find in the family is supposed to extend out. This is something that's said explicitly in the papal documents and is supposed to be the model for our economy. Sadly, now we're seeing 
seeing that the, the, the ways of the economy is down, taking over the relations of families. Divorce right. is permitted. Yeah, like wa wages within families are even given. You pay and certain transgenderism, people. the idea oh, that I'm man. not male, I'm female, or I'm whatever I want yes. in terms of my pronouns. It's like, well, there goes marriage, and with marriage goes the family. And it's yep. just like we re redefine marriage, we make it dissoluble. It's like we're toast unless yeah. we change. Absolutely. And, and so in contrast, you have these different levels of the family. You That's have right. the nation of Israel, you have the different tribes, you have the clans and the kin, right? Right. And, and, the, and I think these are some pretty important terms because when we're talking about redemption of land here, so, okay, somebody's poor. They need, they need a loan, first of all. We mentioned that. Right. You can't take, you can't charge interest here. This is the first, first thing that you find on um, somebody that's, that's kind of fallen on their rear end that's right. in the tough times. And so then, and then the second stage is, well, they've actually gone further than needing a loan. They actually need to go work for another. That's right. And, or start, start, excuse me, start selling land. Yeah, yeah. They don't sell the land, but they have to lease it. Or lease if it land is yeah. marketable, then mm -hmm. you can sell it and never get it back again. Right. But the point of the sabbatical year, but even more the year of Jubilee, is that you can lease the land, but what you're really selling are how many years there are before the next Jubilee, how many crops, how much flocks, you know, how much increase. And so they're going to have to do cost benefit analysis and figure out, okay, what can I gain from the land over the next nine years, since in nine years there's a jubilee? Yes. And, and they also know that in nine years the land will revert back to the original family that inherited this when they entered the promised land. And that was divided in Joshua. That's is right. Is that right? That's okay. Right. Do you think that is some sort of a parallel to this doctrine of the universal destination of earthly goods? Yeah, I mean, it's a realistic way of applying what was a mosaic ideal. And as I said, apart from Naboth and two or three other passages in Jeremiah mm -hmm. that describe an attempt to keep the sabbatical, attempt to forgive debts, you know. So for example, after the new covenant is prophesied in Jeremiah yeah. 33, 31 to 33, you have this attempt to announce a sabbatical year and the forgiveness of debts, you know, but as you keep reading, you realize why Jeremiah was so livid is because they basically walked it back. Yeah, right. They said, well, we didn't mean it. You know? <laughs> it's like, you'd have been better off not calling for it in the first place and then trying to walk it back, you know? And so what we have to do though, is if we think in terms of the covenant, we will live according to the Sabbath, then we will work hard for six days. We'll see our work is ordered to worship, not just individualistically and not just in terms of my family or your family, but recognizing that even though the family, the human race has broken apart, the new Adam has brought about a new Israel. And in the new covenant, we have the Sabbath on the Lord's day, the day of new creation, the eighth day, every seven days we celebrate the resurrection. But we also have the seven sacraments that imply, okay, you know, if, if I'm a godfather to a particular person through baptism, then my kid can't marry them. Right. That is sacramental incest apart from a dispensation. Oh, come on. How can canon law take sacramental kinship so seriously? <laughs> well, again, this is supernatural math. Do it and you'll figure out that this is not make-believe kinship that Christ has restored in his own flesh and blood. And so when we read this, I mean, the first seven verses, fittingly, of Leviticus 25 deal with the sabbatical year. Every seven years you have this idea of of, of, of forgiving debts. 
and the land lying fallow. So anybody can walk through your land and reasonably eat from it, which they could do. Actually, gleaning was permitted even for the six years before the sabbatical year. I mean, wow, this is yeah. this is not communism, but it is communalism. Right. Where you, you don't have the, you know, the, the state authorities saying what is yours is mine and we can redistribute it. No, what you're saying is what is yours is yours and what is mine is yours and what is yours <laughs> is mine because that's the way brothers and sisters live. They fight for sure and they might compete, but they don't reduce their relations to transactional exchange in strict contracts in the free market. I mean, right. we're blinded by our own greed. So in this next section, so if somebody's... Yeah, beginning in verse 8. In verse 8. Should we just re- Do you want to read that for us? Yeah. Um, and you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall be to you 49 years. Then you shall send abroad the loud, uh, the loud trumpet, the yovel, which is where we get the word jubilee. The trumpet is sounded on the 10th uh. day of the seventh month which just so happens to be Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So the very fact that God is forgiving sins through the high priest on Yom Kippur, that's the signal of the beginning of the 50th year. Right. And then it goes on. You shall send abroad the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. So liberty isn't just your free from law. No, you're free to go back to your ancestral inheritance. You're free to have your family restored, but you're also free to have an additional year of leisure, celebration, and rest. And so it goes on, it shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his family. A jubilee shall that 50th year be to you in it, shall you neither sow nor reap what grows what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you, you shall eat what it yields out of the field. And so just watch the Lord God provide what doesn't necessarily have to be sown and plowed and weeded and all of the rest, he'll take care of you. Well, you know, you think about the potential loss of profit if we just allow the land to lie fallow and only eat what grows of its own, you know, it's like, Lord, we're, we're missing out on all kinds of revenue. And the Lord would say, <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> Don't worship the works of your hands. Worship the work of my hand, which is forgiveness and mercy and atonement. And bask in that instead. That's real wealth. Yeah. You do not live by bread alone. That's right. Not Here even the is. miraculous manna that he not provided. Only, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so then he, he continues on. He says, I mean, this is kind of the amazing thing, actually. So many of us are in these metropolises. That's right. We're, we're being, you know, kind of effeminatized in, within the city walls, not actually working in the place of protection. So we don't even know that, that food is generative in this way. That's when right. We I read mean, this. I yeah. would say that uh, yeah. men are being feminized, but women are being reduced to, unless you're like men, you're not worthwhile. You're not productive, you know. Yep. You know, Maritain once said, Jacques Maritain something, said something like this, that when you, when you deny or reject the fertility of marriage, you will then celebrate the fertility of money. And so with the emergence of contraception has come the emergence of an economy that is based entirely and exclusively on the, the, the counterfeit fertility of money through interest. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. 
I mean, it's beyond bass backwards, but you're right. <laughs> From verse 13 on, this is where you get to the challenging part of the substantial element of this. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you sell to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. According to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the number of years for crops, he shall sell to you. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall diminish the price for it is the number of the crops that he's selling to you. In other words, not the land. Right. You yeah. shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God for I am the Lord your God. So it's an extension of the original Sabbath law. Commandment number three, you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you labor, but on the seventh day you rest, you and your sons and daughters, manservants, maidservants, oxen and asses, and even the sojourners in your gates. In other words, there is no lower caste that you shall enslave or make them work for you. You're all going to celebrate as one extended family this peace, this freedom. Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my ordinances and perform them, so you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, you shall, and you will eat it your fill and dwell in it securely. And you remember, too, that back in Exodus 16, the, the Sabbath law was actually given to Israel before they even arrived at Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20. But it, was, it coincided with the daily bread that we call manna, so that if you take more in the morning than you'll need for the day, it will be rotted by the next day, except on the sixth day. So on the sixth day, you can take a double portion of the manna, and for whatever miraculous reason, it won't spoil or rot. It will sustain you over the seventh day, the Sabbath, where there will be no manna. And so this way, Paul quotes this in 2 Corinthians when he's talking about the just and equitable distribution of our goods among all of the members of the mystical body. Those who had little had enough, and those who had a lot didn't have too much. Mm. And so it's the kind of equity that a father and mother administer in a family, where the five-year-old might need more time and attention and expenses just to care for a more needy child than a 19-year-old who's basically able to fend on his own. But strictly speaking, all of them are co-owners of the land and really, we're all trustees of the sacred trust. And so by the time you get to the concluding part of this, verse 19, uh, the land will yield its fruit, you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? If we may not sow or gather in our crop, I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, just like with the manna on the sixth day, so that it will bring forth fruit for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating old produce until the ninth year. When its produce comes in, you shall eat the old. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall grant a redemption of the land. You know, and just parenthetically, uh, this is like a side pursuit of mine that you know about, but there is this book that is very ancient called the Book of Jubilees. It's actually in the Old Testament canon of the Ethiopian Jews and the Ethiopian Christians of this day. It's called the mini Genesis by the early church fathers. It's 50 chapters long, and it basically recounts the history from Genesis 1 all the way to Israel coming to the border of the promised land, because you basically count up 50 jubilees. And you realize that God really means business, that you are going to get the ancestral inheritance that was meant by God, through Noah, for Shem and his descendants, the Semites, 
for his great-grandson Eber and all of his descendants, the Hebrews. And then since you are in the line of descent from the Semitic people, from the Hebrew people, from Abraham's grandson Jacob, who's named Israel, the Israelites are going to get this land back and voila, the entrance into the promised land just happens to coincide perfectly <laughs> with the, the 50th Jubilee. You know, and so it's a theology of history. It's not about how much clock time it took for God to make the world or how much clock time it's been since the beginning. It's how to read time in terms of the revelation of God's covenant mercy. And I mean, it's just my, my, I suspect that our, if anybody's still listening, <laughs> their brains may be exploding, but hopefully our hearts will be ignited because God loves us like a fiery love. Mm -hmm. And, and he wants to make this more than, you know, homegrown economics. He really wants to make this a kind of sacramental economy that to the extent that we can live by supernatural grace, we can restore the natural order the natural land, the natural family, a natural neighborhood through our parish. Yeah. We ought to get the men and women who really rule their families well and have at St. Peter's, our parish, a council of elders mm -hmm. who might give that kind of sage advice mm. when we face debt, when we face need. You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, of Mike Sullivan, mm. you know, who's really working with you to found the College of St. Joseph the Worker. I've approached him about, why don't you be a kind of sage figure? Because you've studied theology. He was one of my students in the master's program. He's also an amazing contract worker, but he's apprenticing all of these people. And he wants to kind of institutionalize this with the College of St. Joseph the Worker. So electrical work, you know, my son, my oldest son learned electrical work from Mike and from others too. I mean, it's just like, this is like sanctified common sense. Right. <laughs> this is like supernaturalized natural wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> and I think God wants us to do it more than we want him to. He wants to bless this. There'll be spits and starts. There'll be all kinds of, of ups and downs, you know. Mm. But I mean, we don't even want him to do it, much less do we want ourselves to do it. And so by just like lighting a flame, like the pilot light of holy desire to see this restored incrementally, I mean, baby steps, but just, yep. you know, as we take baby steps, like babies will fall flat on our face. Our, our grandson, Johnny, just lost his three front teeth by oh. falling on the floor Ooh, uh, the day before Johnny. yesterday. You know? oh, man. Yeah, the adult teeth will grow back. But I mean, <laughs> this is how families grow and learn and celebrate through suffering and hardship. But also, you know, it's just amazing to see what God is capable of doing. And when we look at you know, when we look at the um, the Holy Roman Empire, or when we look at, you know, I'm looking at Andrew Jones' book, Before Church and State, where he's looking at at uh, St. Louis, King Louis the, the Ninth, I think it is, nice. and, uh, and how he created this holy Christian commonwealth. Mm. It wasn't church and state merged. It was the church was clergy and laity. What we would call the state, you know, King Louis would have said, no, no, I'm not the state. I'm not the head of state. I'm part of the church. Okay, granted the laity are under the clergy and there's a hierarchy, but there's also a, a natural hierarchy. The king is living out his baptism, his confirmation, his own sacrament of matrimony. And by being a father figure to all of those who are part of natural families there among the Franks, you know, it's sort of like a theandric organism, you know. So there's a sacramental way of establishing a social order that does not reduce the church to the clergy, it does not identify the laity with the state as opposed to the church. Right. It says, look, a Catholic society ought to be a sacramental organism. 
I'm reminded of Father Keith, the Jesuit, I went to study under for my doctorate. In this, in this lecture, he just interrupted himself and pointed out that if Catholics simply lived the grace of the sacrament of matrimony for like 40 consecutive years, the result would be a Catholic society, a Christian social order. Mm. Apart from the politicians you and the promises they make and break and the ones that you vote for, they lose or they win. Mm. And I thought, well, that's just a flight of fancy. But no, that that really is true. If we just live the grace of the sacraments, then that effect will be a Christianized social order. Well, we we need need to start living that more than ever. I think part of the problem is that it's so easy for us to say today that we live in a post-Christian society. Right. And we can point to the edges of our society, like the craziest things, like the transgenderism movements and whatever else, and say, look, that's post-Christian. We're post-Christian. But it's hard to say, well, where's actual actually the line. Right. And obviously the line somewhere in our own soul, right? Parts of us that still need to convert to, to be able to see Christ's face more clearly, to love him more, more dearly. But we don't, we've so lost, uh, you know, the proper understanding of what it means to live as a Christian that we, we're not even sure what parts of us are post-Christian and what parts no. are actually Christian. You know, you've probably seen this in my book, It Is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion, that um, that for us to even express verbally the desire to dream about, mm -hmm. to pray for a, a Christian social order, I mean, that would be like off-limits. That would be extremism. Right. I mean, even good Catholics would say, wait a second, you're violating the liberal order we're in a kind of pluralistic detente. Well, the prophets had a word for that, you know, polytheism, idolatry, paganism, you know. And so you pointed to your heart, you know, a minute ago, you talked about the love and you think about the prayer. You know, when Jesus says, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, it wasn't just his sacred heart pierced, it's ours as well. And so I think about what Catholics are content with. You know, we congratulate ourselves on retaining a kind of conservative social values, but even that is like a puddle that is drying up. It's, it, you know, it's barely a trickle. It's not a stream of living water. Yeah. And I think, okay, if we allow ourselves to desire it, we'll, we'll discover, I'm sure, that God desires it even more than we do. Right. And he'll, a little effort will go a long way as long as we're, we're feebly striving to do something to honor the kingship of Christ. He won't say, well, you're on your own. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's going to give us more help than ever, I That's think. That's right. No, I, I, I know we're wrapping up. The last thing I wanted to just read and hear you comment on is this one part of the redemption, the year of Jubilee, where something does not get returned to someone. That's right. So here, if we read on, I do not have the... the what verse in particular? Are you thinking verse 25 and following? Actually, uh, yes, particularly 29. But yeah, oh, yeah, verse, we... the, the walled city. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's just jump down to 29. Great, great. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a whole year after its sale. For a full year, he shall have the right of redemption. So he can sell a house in a mm -hmm. walled city, but with the right of redemption being his for one year. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house that is in the walled city shall be made sure in perpetuity to him who bought it. Throughout his generations, it shall not be released in the Jubilee. But the houses of the villages which have no wall around them shall be reckoned with the fields of the country. They may be redeemed and they shall be released in the Jubilee. 
Nevertheless, the cities of the Levites, which is what I was referring to mm -hmm. earlier, the houses in the cities of their possession, the Levites may redeem at any time. Now, we don't have the time to go into this, but you remember that in Leviticus, the laws are given right after the golden calf in Exodus 32. Up until the golden calf, all 12 tribes formed Israel, and that was what God called the firstborn son. Go tell Israel, go tell Pharaoh, Israel, my firstborn son. So at the Passover, all of the firstborn sons were not only ransomed by the blood of the lamb, they were also consecrated to be the priests. So in Exodus 24, mm -hmm. when the sacrifice of the animals occurs, the young men are offering the sacrifice. The rabbis have a consensus. Those are the firstborn from the 12 tribes. But after the golden calf, when the Levites alone avenge God's holiness and honor by slaughtering 3,000 of the idolatrous calf worshipers, Moses announces, today you've ordained yourselves to be the priests. And so, as Hebrews 7 would say, where there's a change in the priesthood, there's change in the law. So instead of Exodus just applying to all the 12 tribes, the 12 tribes were laicized, defrocked in a way. Hmm. And Numbers 1 to 5 describes that in great detail. And then the Levites alone are elevated to become the clergy to the 12 tribes of Israel, hence the laws that we call Leviticus, hence the cities that we call Levitical. Mm -hmm. The Levitical cities are scattered among all the tw tr 12 tribes of Israel. There are 48 of them, six of which are cities of refuge. When you realize what all of this is, it just seems so irrelevant. It just seems so random to us as we read about it. It's like, what a strange assortment of, you know, unfulfillable laws, unless you go back and realize, run your hands over the map, you realize this is mapping a social order that is, it isn't just some idealistic utopia. No, it deals with slavery, it deals with murder, it deals with all kinds of sin and crime, mm. but it's giving us the means by which we could have a just social order. And the Levitical cities, I think, are places where medicine, and law and education are provided by the Levites who adjudicate difficult legal matters. They teach the 12 tribes the law, as it were. They also provide a medical service in diagnosing lepers as to whether they're healed or right. they're still unclean. Right. And, and so Aquinas says in the Summa around questions of, I think it's 103, 104, where he's dealing with the ceremonial and judicial precepts. Of the Prima Secundae. Yeah, yeah the Prima mm -hmm. Secundae, the Summa. Yeah. He basically says that though the ceremonial precepts are dead and fulfilled by the new covenant sacraments, the judicial statutes, though dead and not binding, can nevertheless be followed not as though they're binding, but as though they're luminous. In other words, if you study the laws of Moses and discover in the judicial statutes precepts that would in fact be sources of justice, you can't enforce them as though they still bind us like they bound the Israelites, but they can instruct us and guide us. And so Aquinas gives many different examples of medieval society and social practices that are derivative of these judicial laws. And you're like, in other words, they're not idealistic in the strict sense because they were practical. They were mm -hmm. realistic. Even if they're not reproducible in our modern or postmodern context, we ought to be studying these things so that if ever our Lord allowed a restoration to occur in a neighborhood or a town or a county, we would do well, like Justinian did, to come up with a code based upon a studious reflection upon these laws because as Paul says in Romans 2, we have in the law the embodiment of truth and justice. 
Yes. And, and these houses in particular. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting thing that people would have a house in, in these cities that are not redeemable. That's right. And then houses out in the country that are. The village towns that are not walled. Yes. Because the walled cities really are a kind of metropolis, a mother city. But you have productive property out, and that is like getting people, the poor, to places where they can actually not quite pull themselves up by their bootstraps. No, but work alongside of other families. Exactly. And be adopted or treated as sojourners. And again, you got to remember that if anybody's hungry, they can walk through your farmland and pick the produce. They can't bring... Uh, they can't bring a buggy, they can't bring a wagon, they can't harvest, but as they're going to work or as they're being, you know, as they're being employed by your neighbor, Mm -hmm. they can pick the grapes, they can pick the olives, you know, Uh, and it's like, well, wait a minute, what do you mean they can, they're your (laughs) brothers, you know, (laughs) and if they're only strangers and sojourners, then they're your potential brothers and sisters, right? and this is the only way to think if we call God Father to see other people through his fatherly eyes and Mary's motherly eyes. I remember one time I was a doctoral student riding my bike down to Marquette, and I see this guy, this, this, this fella who is just, you know, a street urchin, and he's harassing some gal, and she crossed the street, and I'm thinking, what a jerk of a pig of a louse, you know? And then Mary just gave me her eyes for a minute, and I'm like, Christ died for him. You're praying for him, and you're asking me to pray for him and not condemn him as I drive right by. And so I said a decade of the rosary for this guy, who, what a jerk of a pig of a louse, and yet he's a potential brother, mm-hmm. and Mary loves him, and we should too. And it's like, I wasn't even Catholic yet, but I realized, okay, this is what it's going to start to mean when I become a Catholic. I'm going to have to see them through Mary's motherly eyes, God's fatherly eyes. Christ doesn't say, I didn't die for him. There isn't a square inch of the whole planet that he doesn't point to and say, that's mine too. You know, all of us, all of this is his, all of, you know, it's like, We've got to rethink how we tie our shoes and comb our hair. And, you know, we have to rethink the alphabet, you know, in terms of this covenant, because this is the good news, but it's not just good, it's it's truth. Mm. And it's reality. The more we get in step with it, the better off we are. But, you know, I want to circle back, as you do too, to the villages that are not walled, mm. because what they are representing is an extension of the family. And so those villages might be places where we bring our crops and flocks and, you know, the firstborn and all of that to sell because a free market economy would flourish more, not less, if it's subordinated to a familistic society. Hmm. Just as brothers flourish more when they're guided by good parents, you know, and I would add paternalism is counterfeit paternity. You know, I don't lord it over my six kids now that they've all become parents or adults. No, we celebrate as brothers and sisters, you know, but I think that is just what paternity implies in, in fathering and mothering our families. And so we we recognize, okay, there are houses, there are villages, there are sojourners, there are, you know, what do we call them? Day workers, you know, like in the parables, you know, they're picked the first hour, then the third hour, then the the, the final hour but all of them are part of an extended family. And we can have free market economics, we can have private property, but invariably the property belongs not just to individuals, but to extended families. That's right, yeah. And ultimately everybody is part of a parish, and what is the parish but an extended family? Exactly, so it doesn't matter what 
social order we have created right now, there's one that's more true that's underlying that's it. That's right. That we need to start to change our lives to help that kind of come up out of the ground again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, so, I've forgotten about the microphones. Yeah. I've forgotten about our listeners. And so <laughs> it's like the proverbial ocean. We need to let them go, go, don't we? Yeah. yeah but I gotta tell you, it feels like our conversations on the back porch or you know, in the basement of St. Peter's, you know, only without the donuts or the bourbon <laughs> and the cigars. I'm yeah. sorry. I don't know what I was thinking to leave those away. Yeah. Oh, Jacob, Scott, thank you. Thanks a thousand times. Yeah. I appreciate you so much. And uh, this is, uh, you know, this is just a conversation that's going to c- continue to go on for a oh, while. I hope so. And and uh, we'll just go back to the bourbon and cigars and get rid of the mics. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All oh, right. Thanks a million. You're Appreciate welcome. Keep it. up the great work. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you.